The Unpublished Podcast with Amy and James. Hi creatives, welcome to another episode of The Unpublished Podcast. My name is Amy. I'm James. And today we have our very good friend, um, actually in person with us, Sean Cousins is a performance coach, um, one of our mentors, honestly, for the last few years. And we're so excited to talk to you today, Sean. Well, thanks for having us, guys. I'm equally excited, nervous, and honoured. Sean, so. I think the reason I'm so excited to have Sean is because I've never met someone who's a more natural entrepreneur than Sean. Yeah. Okay. But at the same time, <laughs> you have you have this aspect of the entrepreneurship. It's not it's not like you're creating businesses because I feel like you want to create businesses. I feel like it's because you love fun and creativity and you love connection. Connection and like it's it always comes from a place. Always seems like it comes from a place of just enjoyment, of pure enjoyment, right? You're 100% right, because everything I've ever done has started with that. And it was quite funny, because we were speaking last week, and I said, oh, I'm not creative at all. And you went, I strongly disagree. <laughs> and since then, I've been thinking about it, and I'm, I was like really honored when you said that. I'm mm. like, well, maybe I am creative. You're one of the most creative people I know. Which I never would have said that about myself. Yeah. Actually, to that point, I would have said I'm not a creative person. Yeah. And coming from you, when you said that, mm. I thought to myself all week, I'm like, maybe I am a creative person. And I've, I've, it was actually like quite an honor for, to hear you say that. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super important for you to understand that, I think, because and for you to look through at what you're doing all the time through your business and through your connection with people as creativity, like it's all creative. Mm. And I think when we can, like when we put creativity in such a high platform as like a certain type of art or I'm really good at drawing, but like creativity sits at the heart of entrepreneurship I think and you are like an incredible entrepreneur and I'm so excited today to talk about a bit about that a bit about I want to talk about goal setting what else are our intentions today James? um we want to talk about uh maybe you do a little bit of sample coaching session from Sean as well yeah um, oh okay potentially pretend maybe just pretend that I have a go- maybe I was thinking I could either pretend to be myself which doesn't make sense <laughs> or I could pretend to be someone who I am not. <laughs> you can see, we're such a professional podcast. Well, can I ask? <laughs> yes. Have you got a goal? Yeah, I do have a goal. Okay. Yeah, I do. A creative goal. Do you want to share it? You don't have to. Yeah, But if we're going to do a pretend so, coaching and I, and session. I've been talking about it a little bit on the podcast already. Okay. Um, that I'm trying to up my output. I'm essentially trying to double my output at the moment. And okay. I did it really, I did it quite successfully for a few months. And then I've come on holidays and like, we had the book due and stuff like that. And kind of. I fell out of routine with it and now I'm worried about going back home and going from 500 words a day to 1,000 words a day. Do you know, really quickly, I think it's really interesting because you're so process driven, all your goals are about your process. There's never like a, like if you were to say you have like an end goal, like would be to be published or something. No, you're always... My goal is just to write 1,000 words a day. I don't know, like I don't even know what that's leading to and maybe that's a problem too. Well, I I don't definitely don't think it's a problem, but it's definitely rare. Because it's a lot more common, and why I asked if you already have a goal, it's a lot more common for people to have the outcome. So the big outcome goal, and they very rarely have the process goals. Mm. So I would say you're in the minority there by having process goals without having the outcome goal. And I think that you, again, like I almost feel like doing, it's interesting to talk about this, but I think you are a rarity, and it's almost like an unusual one to do because it's so rare. Well, the issue for me then is that I just want to keep, I, I finish a project and then I should, you know, try and sell it or I should try and do something with it, uh, but I just do nothing. Because mm-hmm. it's only process. Then I just move on to the mm-hmm. next part of the process. Like, yeah. there's no event I'm building towards, there's no um, publisher I really want to submit my book to or anything. It's just, I'm enjoying the process, so why not keep going? And then upping my word goals almost just so I can do more process. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
And I, I think people will struggle to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, most. Uh, yeah. There are definitely people that are listening that will be like, well, yeah, I'm super process driven. Mm-hmm. But it is the minority for sure. Yeah. I think what happens with, and this is only my opinion, but with people that are process driven, it, typically it might be coming from a way, a fear of failure of having that outcome goal. Mm-hmm. So they're a little bit scared to set that big audacious goal because they're scared that if they arrive there and it doesn't happen, then what? So they just fall back on their processes. That's, that's, that that's like rings true to me as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah, okay. I think it's, I totally, because I can just feel like I'm a success every day. Because you're But then never actually do anything that's, I mean, success is subjective, obviously. But of it's course. Like, I never actually have to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. You're protecting yourself. Yeah. yeah. And it is so hard to have a goal because it is so scary because th- when we have goals, there is the realistic chance that we won't make them. Yeah. So it's a defense mechanism. Whereas I, I can really control making my writing goal every day. Mm. Yeah. I can just put, I, you know, if I'm, even if I have a busy day, I can still sit down and write for an hour and I can, I can almost always find that time. It's really hard for me to fail at it. Yeah. So if we flip that, uh, typically what most people were probably listening to, would they have the big audacious goal yeah. of getting published, reaching X amount of followers online, mm. whatever it might be, you know, insert your goal here. And then what happens is they don't concentrate on the process goals yeah. and they think that it's called the arrival fallacy. They think that when they get to that big outcome goal, then I'll be happy, mm. you know, when I get public, then I'll be happy. When I get 10,000 followers, then I'll be happy. Mm. And typically what happens, I'm sure we've all had it and everyone listening is that you've achieved a goal in your life that you thought were gonna, was going to make you happy and have everlasting happiness. Mm. It's not really the case. Yeah. You have that arrival fallacy of mm. when I get there, I'll be happy. So typically what most people do is they set the big audacious goal and don't have the process goals. Mm. And what we do with that is we... Re- reverse engineer it and we talk about what those process goals are what those actionable steps are to get you towards that big outcome goal mm. if we were to do a mock training session one of the first things that i'd ask you is why is there no outcome goal you know yeah. we sort of touched on it there yeah. briefly and you definitely don't have to answer it if you're not comfortable and it takes a lot of thought but i would say in the past have you ever had an outcome goal That's a and question. how did it unfold yeah, I mean, I guess I not related at all to my can I mean not related at all to my creativity. Nothing needs to be related when we talk about goals because they are they you know they're blanketed. The same rules apply to any goal, whether it's yeah. creativity, where it's professional, where it's personal, mm. whatever. Mm. So no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think I've often had a goal. Like I think maybe say if you take it back to uni, I had a goal to get first class honors with my thesis, and. My thesis was, I wasn't happy with it in the end. It, it all kind of fell apart at the end. And I got, I, I ended up getting first class honors overall, but not for my thesis. Like it was backed up by my coursework. So I got like a second two one on my thesis. And then I think potentially that was a really shattering moment for me. Cause I felt like it made me feel like I was stupid mm. maybe. And then I was like, well, if I just focused on the work and then when my masters, I was like, well, I'm just going to focus on actually doing a good job day to day. And then I did do a lot better with my masters in the end because of that process. But I was still felt scarred by that moment in my oh, my actual thesis wasn't as good as I wanted it to be and I didn't get the result. Okay, so just in that sentence, there's a few things like shattered, stupid, yeah. scarred, you know, yeah. these are all attached to your outcome goal. Mm. So if you have ongoing outcome goals and they've made you in the past feel shattered, feel stupid, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to continue to set mm. those, yeah. you know? Your evidence in the past is that I can just get self-fulfillment by setting the process goals. Mm. If I set the outcome goal, you've got all these negative emotions or feelings attached towards them, 
no more no more outcome no more goals outcome. Yeah. no more yeah. outcome yeah. goals i'll just do my daily thing yeah. and it's not it's not a bad way to approach it i hate to label any kind of goal setting or aspirations as good or bad but it's definitely worth looking at mm. you know and if if we were doing a session what i'd say is we would dig into that a little bit deeper and try to find out some other outcome goals mm. and realize that the evidence back there isn't necessarily determining what your future outcome goals look like. Mm. You're a different person now to when you were in uni studying, you know, and you might have different aspirations and goals now as well. Yeah. So although we need to understand that evidence, we don't need to take that as gospel on what's mm. going to happen in the future. Yeah, interesting. So if, uh, and we're not doing a session, but if yeah. we were, <laughs> I, would, I would highly encourage you to start very small with an outcome goal. I love that because we always talk about starting small with process goals, mm -hmm. but because you are so different in that way, like I like starting small with an outcome that like you've never, yeah. I don't think you've ever done that. I wonder what, I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. Mm. That's so interesting. Like what I do, trying to try and submit to a certain number of agents and get a yes. I get like a, a full manuscript request from three agents. Or yeah. Something like something like smaller than, yeah. yeah. I'm quite ignorant in this world, mm. you know, what you're talking about right now, but I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I'd say start smaller, mm -hmm. even not understanding that. Yeah, yeah. Because what you do need to do is you need to get some runs on the board. Yeah. So you, you need to prove to yourself that these outcome goals can have a positive impact on your life mm. and not just the processes. So I would recommend, and I don't know how small of a goal that is for you, but unless it's 100% guaranteed yeah, to have a positive big. impact, mm. yeah. you need to go smaller. You yeah. need to go smaller. It needs to be a, a, an assured win. Yeah. It, definitely. Because when you set yourself up for these outcome goals, if you set yourself up to fail time and time again, New Year's resolutions, mm. you know, people fail these. 42% of people by the end of January have failed their New Year's resolution. And it's not because it's the wrong goal or aspiration, but it's usually too big of an outcome goal. Mm -hmm. So they failed it and they've given up on it. Mm -hmm. Super motivated for the first two weeks because it's very inspiring and motivating and you mm -hmm. get really good credit by telling people, but in the long term, it doesn't really pan out like that. So with you, I'm not sure how small of a goal that was that you said, it but I would recommend, okay. <laughs> okay, go small, go small, get some runs on the board, don't try set your first one as a big audacious goal. Prove to yourself that the outcome goals have positive impact on your life. Mm. Build that outcome goal up and up and up and up. Interesting. I love that. I feel like no one's ever told you to do that. No, and, it, and it's almost that's, it's harder to think of a small outcome goal for me than a big outcome goal. Like way harder. Like I kind of, yeah. I'm seeing here, I'm like, what would I even do? Yeah. And that's, I think would be the challenge for me. Yeah, really cool. I, I really know there'd that. be things I could set, but it just, it would take a lot of work for me to actually reason through what that would yeah. be. I have a question, Sean. I was wanted to talk to you about failure and mm -hmm. your experience with failure because I think also something about setting these outcome goals is also knowing that when, if it doesn't happen that you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like that if you do miss the outcome, just like James did miss that outcome, that we don't need to carry that baggage onto the next one. And like how do we alchemize failure into you know, more self-belief and, and more motivation. And like, I'm also just interested in where you failed in mm -hmm. life and how you've used it. Yeah, so failure is a, a massive one. And, and to be honest, it is very personalized because mm. you've got to understand what failure looks like for each individual when you're talking about this. So having a blanket approach to how to um, come back from failure, it doesn't really work like that, you know? Mm. But I can just use some examples. So. One of the first things with failure is you need to understand your failures in the past and what led to them. Mm. So typically, if we're talking about the big outcome goals over and over and over again, and you continue to fall short, then we need to address that 
Okay. Yeah. So it's not only we we learn from our failures, which is a very very you know stereotypical yeah, yeah, thing yeah. to say, but we need to understand the failure and where the failure mm. came unstuck. So, for example, if you have the ability to set ninety minutes a week aside for your personal growth towards your goal, your aspiration, your creativity, insert whatever it is that resonates with you. Mm. If you've got ninety minutes a week and you're setting a goal that's going to take five hours a week, from the get go. We're, what are you doing? We're not matching yeah. it up. You've got two options there. If you understand that's what's happened in the past, what you can do moving forward, you can do two things. You can set a goal that is within those parameters that are going to take 90 minutes a week, okay? Because then you've got the actual potential to achieve this goal mm-hmm. or aspiration, whatever it may be. Or the second thing is you need to increase that 90 minutes to five hours. So you need to have a look at your life mm-hmm. and you need to have a look at where your time is being spent, you know? And then you need to make some sacrifices potentially mm-hmm might be screen time, it might be, you know, whatever it is, you need to bring that 90 minutes up to five hours to then achieve the big outcome goal. But if you continue to move forward without reflecting on what what made that failure unfold, Mm. more than likely you're going to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. So for example, with my failures in the past, and that this could be in sports or in business or whatever it is, you don't necessarily just learn from actually failing, you know, because that's a horrible thing. No one enjoys that. Yeah. But you can reflect and understand what led to that failure and then make changes moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of having space to actually, like, failure does hurt, like, and it sucks and you're allowed to feel it. But then having the space to reflect upon it and learn afterwards, I think it's good. Because I think a lot of the time I'm like, well, that fucking sucked. But I'm, like, trying to move on too quickly rather than just, like, well, that did really suck. And I'm sad that it didn't work. Something that really interested me about talking to you the other day about you starting this new chapter of going to performance coaching was that you were like, I'm planning to have no clients for at least six months, <laughs> which didn't end up happening. You got, you, you got, clients <laughs> there, but I was like, was that you building in space to fail? Do you think? And to learn from failure? No. So my, my intentions and my as goals around starting this wasn't to get clients. Yeah. And I think the clearer you are on your outcomes and even making, you know, having public accountability to these things. My, I've got very clear intentions of what the first six months of my business looks like. And getting clients isn't one of them. Okay? Which, Which is mi- so cool. Yeah. yeah, and it might sound very counterintuitive. Yeah. Thankfully, I'm in a position where I can do that. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I haven't got kids that I need to support, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I'm coming off selling a business, so I can take that time. Mm-hmm. So in those six months, I've got very clear intentions of what that looks like. Now, if I get caught chasing the shiny coins, you know, and get pulled in all these different directions, more than likely in six months time, I'm not going to be in the position that I wanted Mm -hmm. to be in. So it's not about me not getting clients. It's more about me being really, really clear on my outcomes and honing in on those. And the byproduct of the outcome goal that I have is clients. Yeah, I love that. And, And that's the proof of concept for me has worked in the past, which is why I can use it now. Yeah. So I, I've used this before. I've got evidence in the past that it works for me. Mm. So then I can copy paste and I can do it again. I think, sorry, James, you do going? you mind? No. I think it's like, if we were to pull that over specifically to artists, I think a lot of artists are like, I need to sell like 10 paintings this month. And I think that kind of goal often, yeah, like could we 
change that and look at different outcomes that mean you're not chasing the gold coin, that dopamine rush of a sale instead of constantly searching for that like one one hit that I feel like can feel like it's never ending and it's exhausting. Could you look at it in a slightly different way? Like if someone was like, I want to sell 10 paintings, could you reframe that in a... Yeah, so they definitely can reframe that. And that's not a bad goal no, either. Yeah, yeah. But if that is the goal, well, you got to understand why, mm, you know? Yeah. So why 10 why this month, you know, really write down and reflect on what that means to you. Yeah. Is that externally motivated? My mortgage is due, my mm. kids are blah, 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 whatever it might be. Is that intrinsically motivated? You know, I want to sell these 10 pieces of art because I know it's going to have an impact on 10 people's lives. That, yeah. that might intrinsically get you motivated. Yeah, yeah. If you have to sell them for an external reason, Harder. It's a lot harder, yeah. you know, to align your core values with a goal yeah. makes the goal a hell of a lot more achievable and yeah. a lot more enjoyable to do something externally motivated, you know, which is why the manager whipping, yeah. you know, people, it's not overly uh, motivating. Yeah. So the way you would reframe that is you need to understand why that is the big outcome goal. Yeah. Okay. And then the opposite to James, how do we process? Yeah. yeah. Something I would do with that exact goal is I would ask someone, if you want to sell 10 paintings this month, what's everything you can do to make sure that doesn't happen? Ooh, you know, I love everything? the negative yeah. one. Yeah. So because our, our, our brains work, work really well with that, write a list of everything you can do this month to not make that happen. Yeah. You know, and you'd be very surprised on that list. Typically, how much of that you're already doing, yeah. you know, procrastination, yeah. you know, not posting, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. The yeah. list goes on and on and on. But when you write it down and you look at it and you go, I've just written down 15 things and I'm already doing six of them. Yeah. You found your answer. You found your process goals. I love that. Yeah. It makes me really excited. It reminds me, we used to do that a little bit with like, um, if this launch doesn't go well, like what have we not been doing? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And looking at back in that way. Like a pre-mortem. A pre-mortem. Yeah. Yeah. So like looking at how it died before it dies. So, and the only reason we're really good at that is because we're very, um, just the way our brains are worked is very protective. You know, yeah, that, that's how yeah. we want to, we want to protect that goal yeah. so we can come up with all the negative biases towards really that. Easily. But if I said to you, all right, for, to sell 10 pieces of art this month or whatever it might be, tell me everything you need to do. Mm. It's not very motivating yeah. and you'd get really wishy-washy answers. Oh, I could contact all my friends. I yeah. could read it. You know, it's, it's very wishy-washy. It might sound negative, but it's proven in psychology. It's a great way to approach something like I that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I want to do that. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I was about to say it's kind of fun. I want to do that for it's our very, year. Yeah, it's very liberating. It's very liberating on coming up with an outcome goal and then coming up with all the stuff that I'm going to do to like mess that goal up. Yeah. And then say, like, oh, I'm already doing some of this. <laughs> it gives you a really good to-do list of like, okay, well, I've got to just cut this shit out. Yep. I really love that. Yeah. I think it works really well for perfectionists. I was going to say that, yeah. And obviously there are a huge amount of perfectionists when we're doing something as brave as starting a business or creating art because it is so vulnerable. But I think this is a really great, great way because perfectionists are experts at figuring out all that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, if I already know, if yeah. I already know, what's the barrier? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. What else you got on that list, boy? Um, good question, Amy. Really good question. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Sean's background because I think it's really interesting. And you're mm. probably sick of talking about it. But um, how did you get to this point of being a performance coach? Like, where were you, you know, when you were 18? Where were you um, even just a few years ago? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the arc? 
So I suppose if we go back to school, a mm. terrible student at school, mm. I virtually went to school to play sport. You know, I didn't get a HSC or a UAI, you know, didn't do any of that. I just played sport and that's all I love doing. Yeah. Can I interject? Sean's one of the most talented natural athletes I've ever seen. Like, he's just the sort of person that you go, chance to play a sport, he's like, oh yeah, I actually played state in that sport. And you're like, really? Really? That sport as well? So, well, that's where it came from. I spent, I spent my time playing sport and I'm actually really grateful for that because I learned a lot of lessons from sport and all different types of sport, whether it's an ind individual sport where you're taking points from someone and they're trying to take them from you, a team sport where you might play terribly but still win mm. or you might have the best game of your life and you lose. Yeah. There's lots of lessons so to in there and I think, I think there is a lot of lessons to learn in sport. But to go back to your question, I played a lot of sport through school. I'm not an academic kid or a creative kid, I would say, in Obviously any way, shape or form. Whatever. <laughs> um, I went into personal training because it was a natural progression to go from sport to mm -hmm. helping people. I have a massive passion to help people. It's one of my biggest core values. Um, so was a personal trainer. I started my own business when I was 21 years of age, started my own gym. I didn't have a client for four months. I just slept on the gym floor, you know. What did you, a quick interjection. Yeah, go. Like, what was that four months like? What was your internal monologue like? Like, what was keeping you going? I was a 21-year-old kid and I was very ignorant and I just didn't know. I had, at the time, I just thought it was going to be okay. Yeah. I just had a delusional belief that it was going to work out. And to paint a picture of what that gym looked like is I grew up out west. So I was living in Parramatta at the time. And I opened my gym on the northern beaches in Warrywood. And so I didn't for know American listeners, idea. it's like you move, you were living. Can you describe Parramatta first in Warrywood <laughs> for people in America? Well, I don't want to. Okay. But I would say it would be. You know, I, like <laughs> I'm almost hesitant to do this. Sure, sure. A, a rougher, part, a rougher it's a, it's less a, wealthy part of Sydney. Moving to a very wealthy. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we grew up around a lot of housing commissions. It was very low socioeconomic. Yeah. It was a lot of immigrants. Um, and then we moved, I, the, where I opened my gym was one of the most affluent suburbs or areas in Australia. Yeah. So it was a massive leap and I didn't know anyone out here and I didn't have any members, but it was where I wanted my life to be. I knew that I wanted to be out here for the rest of my life. And thankfully I had the foresight at 21 to take that jump. Mm. And then didn't have a client for four months just because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. I was a child. I, uh, the concept of the gym that I opened was very foreign to this area. It was very um, um, underground, sort grungy, of hardcore, yeah. grungy kind of theme. And then I remember the first woman that ever walked through and she said, oh, when are your classes? I said, oh, what time do you like to train? She goes, around three o'clock. I said, we've got a three o'clock class. <laughs> and that was my first client. That's so yeah, yeah. Do you remember her? Do you remember who Yeah, I, I remember her. Did yeah. she stay? Uh, she stayed for about a year. Amazing. Yeah. And then, um, but I still see her around. Cute. Like, uh, yeah. Love so, that. Um, yeah. So that was, I started my own gym. And then, along having the gym, I actually recently sold the gym last year in December. So I had it for 13 years. Uh, and then, along the way, I started some other businesses as well that I was thankfully able to sell. Mm -hmm. And then, some of them I'm still involved in as well. So, 
have always been around business since a really young age. Yeah. I just want to quickly jump back to something when you said that you were delusional and I've been having conversations about delusion a lot recently <laughs> and I really think delusion is an important part of being <laughs> a successful creative and entrepreneur. Like you, just a little bit. You don't want to be so delusional that you think you're, you know, you're thinking of something that you're not taking any action on or anything. But like, you just have to be slightly crazy, slightly delusional <laughs> to dare to do the things we do. Or like yeah. the ability to put aside things that like to put aside logic for just a little just bit for a, a moment. Yeah, yeah, just for a moment. Just to see what would it be like if I could do something like that. Yeah, I, I think in, they, there's a bit of a gray area there because I'm, I use the word delusion, but what I'm, what I suppose if I was to really reflect on it, it was a lot of self-belief. Yeah. So it took a lot of self-belief and thankfully I had that from some of the things, you know, in my childhood and through school mm. that I, I had these smaller wins. So Sport. I was full of self-belief. Mm. Um, and I just didn't think anything could go wrong. If I knew then what I know now, would I have opened that gym? Definitely not. Wow. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. It mm. was a terrible decision and it but worked it out. Wasn't. It wasn't in hindsight. Yeah. But then that, that came down to just having a lot of self-belief and mm. which I think what we were talking about before comes from evidence. Mm. You know, mm. if you don't have those small wins, if you don't prove to yourself that you're capable of doing these things, mm. then that self-belief starts to dwindle. Yeah. Cause well, you missed out my favorite part of the story, which is you went to Dubai to coach marathons, having never run more than five kilometers <laughs> in your life, right? <laughs> that did happen. I, um, Again, a little, a little Delulu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> that, that was actually pure delusion. Yeah, that was. I had the opportunity, I, I had an interview with a gym over in Dubai and it was a Skype interview. Went for about two hours and they asked Whoa. me all these random questions. It was a cognitive test and, and it was just, I remember one of the questions is, if you're in a uh, burning building, would you prefer to be saved by a man or a woman? And obviously there's no right answer to that. But what they wanted to do is they just wanted to see the way I answered it. And I have no idea what I said. I just, you know, blabbered and just went, you know, whoever's most qualified, whatever, you know, <laughs> I just tried not to answer it. And um, at the end of the interview, they said, look, we're, we've got a running group that's training towards the uh, Dubai Marathon. Are you able to coach a running group? And I thought I've played sport. I've run before one foot in front of the other. <laughs> like, you know, it definitely can't be that hard. I said, for sure, I can do it. So I got the job and a week later, I moved from, um, at the time in Parramatta to Dubai. And when I got there, the first, I had the longest I had ever run, like you said, was five kilometers. And the first training session I said to the group, there's about 30 people showed up and I said, Hey guys, we're just going to go for a run together. And we're just going to get to know each other just so I can meet everyone. And, and we started running. And then I said, Oh, where are you from? They said, oh, I'm from the UK and this is my 15th marathon and my, my best times 308. And I was like, Oh God. Okay. And then I'll go to the next person. It's like the same story. This is my sixth mar marathon. I'm pushing for this. This is my 10. And I'm like, these guys are so <laughs> experienced. And that run was a 15 kilometer run, which is three times longer than I'd ever run before. And I was just there just going, Oh, what have I done? So then, you know, I was in the deep end. I was in Dubai. I was living by myself. I was like, all right, I've got to learn how to coach oh, a running group, you know? Wow. And then thankfully it went really, really well. I never blatantly lied but I also never told him either you know so it was it was a very weird you know how many what's your experience with running I'm like oh it's too much to list you know <laughs> just moving on that, that sort of that's so funny. but you look I think that's something that Amy and I have learned a lot from is when we started this business like we weren't qualified 
You can't, you can't do a degree. Really qualify, you can't do a degree yeah. in creative coaching. Like, there's no. Mm-hmm. You just have to start doing it. Try and make people trust you. Yeah. Hopefully by being competent. Yeah. It's just and taking then, action after action. Like we, you become by doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to jump back. Sorry. So, you know, go. Uh, to you're talking about getting proof of, of your capability, and I have this beautiful journaling prompt that I love, which is just, and it's called just just write your proof list, mm-hmm. and it's like just write all evidence that you have ever, all evidence that you can do these things. And you just have this list and it's like, whenever you doubt yourself, you've just got all your little wins and you keep going back and you add to it. And it's just this like list and a reminder that you are incredibly capable. And I think too often we just, we forget the small wins. We forget even the big wins because we're constantly looking forward when really we need that like support and that backlog of accomplishment to, to recognize that we are very capable. And I really like that. I couldn't agree more. And typically, so what we're talking about there is like the inner critic versus the inner fan. Mm. And I think for most people, their inner critic looks like a seven foot man or woman full Mm. of muscles, Mm. you know, and their inner fan looks like Mr. Burns. You know, did I say that around? So the inner critic, you know, yeah. big, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, like from the Simpsons, oh, small like and frail, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. the inner fan, you oh, know, so they're trying, they're waving a little flag. yeah, exactly. And that's how I've always pictured it in my that's head. So cute. But if you can, and I think that's a beautiful prompt, if you yeah. can write down your, like I call it evidence, yeah, evidence you know, your evidence, evidence your yeah. proof, whatever yeah. it is. And they, they don't need to be big. No, yeah. I think that's the important thing for people to understand. Mm. And then go back and you can, from that list, you can learn so much about yourself. Mm. You know, but it's very difficult to have that on, on hand, on hand yeah. all the time. Definitely. I love that idea of the inner critic being um, in a fan being Mr. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, often... I heard that somewhere. I can't, t- I can't, <laughs> I can't, can't claim that, but it's really stuck with me because I think that yeah. is what a lot of people's inner critic and inner fan looks like. I often ask people to, because I think so often like that inner critic can seem so big, so violent. And I ask them to imagine it as a very small version of themselves who's having a tantrum. Okay. And so instead of having them as this like demonized, like huge being that's constantly getting you down, it's actually in reality a very, very frightened, very, very scared mm-hmm. young version of yourself who just wants you to stop at all costs because what you're doing is seems way too frightening for them. Kind of takes away some of the... I don't know, like the fear of this internal voice. Because for me, I was so frightened of the voice inside my head. Mm-hmm. And once I understood that she wasn't just like a straight up dickhead trying to take me down at any cost, she was me and she was terrified. That I found like I could have a dialogue with her that was easier rather than always cowering away. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Yeah. And a great way to approach it yeah. too. Really gives you, a, it, it's very empowering. Yeah, I think so it, too. I, I felt like, Oh, I actually have some control and I have some, a way to communicate with this voice. Yeah. Just I felt horrible in the critic. I, it was violent. violent. Yeah, yeah. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. And it was, and that internal monologue was one of my biggest barriers, like constant vitriol. Like you're, you are so lazy. You are so embarrassing. Like what you're doing is delusional, like constant, 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 which I think happens to a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of creatives, because we're daring to do something different. And that inner critic had a lot of those social values that I should stay small, stay obedient you know just do what everyone else is doing um and again when i realized it was just me it was just me telling me that and i was just very very afraid of of being called out or not being enough i just had a way of talking to her that made her feel safe mm-hmm. and that was what the inner critic needed she needed to feel really safe yeah so I, I learned how to talk to her and when i once i could do that i was free to build the literal life of my dreams because she wasn't in my way anymore. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. I'm curious, when, when you had the inner critic having those thoughts, what do you remember about your inner fan back then? What were some of the good things you used to say about yourself? 
it was it, very little, very, little. very, very frail. Do you remember what some of them were? It's a really good question. I believe I had this like very unusual belief in self, mm-hmm. like that was unmutable. Like you, there was something in me that meant I never stopped where it was like, I think I have something to give. And so I kept doing it. And I also knew that I was very stubborn in a way that I liked because again, no matter what I was telling myself, no matter how cruel I was to myself, like I still didn't, I never stopped. Mm-hmm. I just kept going. I kept going with a lot of noise in the background. And I, I knew that there was something tenacious about me. Do you, have you ever thought of what that belief came from? That inner fan belief, the tenacity, do you yeah, ever thought where that came from? You're so contrarian. Like you're always, like you always want to be, if you're, if an authority figure tells you to do something, you always want to do the opposite. I feel like there was like a, a rebellion. rebellious. Yeah. yeah. In there, like, don't tell me what to do. Okay. I reckon it comes from growing up in, sorry, Catherine Steve, a religious family mm. and you wanting, and you, grading against that and wanting to rebel against that constantly. There was lots of things I felt when I grew up that I was like, no, I want to do my way. Mm. And I think that even though I had this inner critic who was very socially conforming, that it was like an inner teenager. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I want to do it this. Like I know, I knew what I wanted. I was also very clear on desire, which I'm very thankful for. Like I always knew what I wanted, Yeah. even though I was very ashamed of mm. what I wanted. There was still a knowing that kept me there. It's so interesting you say that because what I, I suppose what I'm wanted to a point to get across to some mm. people is some people might not have they might have that inner critic that you have mm. but they might not have that inner fan yeah. quite as strong as you did yeah and the point being there is that whatever that inner fan is no matter how small it is you need to cling to that because yeah. you some of the words you use to describe your inner critic then mm. you know were very powerful. But then if we shift that and we talk about you're in a fan, all of a sudden, you know, you sit up in your chair and you, you know, yeah, you got like to trying be, to figure you, it out. Yeah, you yeah, got to yeah. be passionate about it and you found some things there. And I highly recommend to anyone that has where you were with that mm. inner critic, start thinking about what that inner fan says about themselves. Yeah, Whether it's that. a small, it doesn't need to be a big thing. You don't need a lot of evidence to start, but you need something, something to start yeah. off. You need that building block. So really just think of what that one thing is. I think a practice that I literally had to build that inner fan, although I didn't have the language to call her that in the moment, was that when I started journaling, I would let the inner critic have the page and I would watch like the crap pour out, like just hatred. And then at the end, I would never let my journaling end like that. And essentially I was letting my inner fan have the page and she was, and she always had to finish because I was never allowed to finish my journaling with that voice. Mm-hmm. And she was she was so compassionate and she had so much faith and she was always like, fuck this. We're going to, we're going to do what we need to do when you're doing so well. She was my fan. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't necessarily always believe what she was saying, I always made sure to give her space on the page. And the more I wrote that language, it just became part of my neural network. Mm-hmm. And then more and more, the fan took up more, more spaces on the page. Yeah. And you can look at those early journals and you just see the difference. It's almost like the handwriting changes, but it was that voice that I often call like a mothering voice. Cause she was like mother hen, like kind of coming in and she was like, shut the fuck up. Like we have something so important to do here. Mm-hmm. I know you have something to give. And I just always made sure that I put that on the page. And what was interesting though, is as you journaled and transformed, you did also start doing more valuable things. Like you started teaching more, you started coaching more, you started, your writing really took off. It changed like, everything. Everything yeah. changed. So it's like you were your fan and then you proved it to your fan as well. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Evidence. Yeah. You know, yeah. Evidence yeah. there. And I think it is very important that people do have that inner critic space, you yeah. know, because you can never silence it. It doesn't go mm. away, you know, and that's why we see the most successful people in any, 
you know, area of life that you pick, they still have that inner mm. critic, you know, and you have to, you have to create space for it. I agree. You have something, to listen. Something there that I just, I was picked up on what you're talking about is that you were talking about the belief that you had in the inner fan. Mm-hmm. And something that I would like to work with people with and what I would like the most people to understand is just telling yourself that you're worthy and telling yourself that you're beautiful. If you don't have that initial belief in that, you know, it's not going to quite resonate the way that when someone like you says it because mm-hmm. you had, had that belief. It yeah. was there. Yeah. And all we need to do with people is to find what that little thing is and that's what we need to work. And to you know? pull it out. Correct. Yeah. Whereas if you get, if you externally absorb something and you say to yourself in the mirror, I'm beautiful, I'm worthy, I love myself, but there's nothing to there cling to. to cling to yet. They're the wrong words for you. They're the wrong affirmations. If you're going to be doing that, you need to find what that is and it might be tiny but that is the more powerful thing rather than these big, strong statements. I really statements. like that. Yeah. I think that's what's often wrong with affirmation work is like just saying all these words that you w- wish you want, you wish you wanted to be. But like, yeah, really finding those core things that you know you are that maybe you just haven't fostered. Yep. And you need to find what it is. Mm. That, that you, is step one. How do you recommend? Reflection. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend, you know, if you've got the mental capacity and if you've got the ability to do it yourself, then reflection on your life is huge, mm. okay? Because all the lessons are there and the reasons that you do things and the reason you are the way you are, there's, there's evidence there that we can find. Mm. If you haven't got the ability to do that, then speak to someone. Yeah. You know, that, that's the next step is if, if you haven't got those tools in your arsenal, then you need some external help to go and reflect on yeah. some of these things. Yeah. I had a friend text me the other day and asked me like three questions and they were like, what, like, well, what do you feel when you're around me? What do you think my first impressions are and something else? And I feel like she was really trying to look at like how she was trying to get to something there. I think mm-hmm. it's interesting when you reach, especially when you speak to those who are close to you. Yeah. What do they see in you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, that's some you know, you, you can't take that as... Yeah, all external. Exactly. Yeah. You, you can work with that because mm-hmm. that might either disprove or prove some of the things that you think about yourself. So you've got to be very careful with how much um, weight you put attached mm-hmm. to that stuff as well. It's not right to say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me because that's not true either. Yeah. But also you cannot give them the power that to this is you. what I think yeah, about you. Yeah. So I would, that's definitely a move. I would say you need to be probably a little bit more sure in yourself mm-hmm. before you go in the ask for these external yeah, things. Yeah. Really find yourself first, then ask some external stuff after yeah, that. I think that would advice. be step two or three. Yeah. Don't start there. Yeah. So that's interesting. So I was I was going to ask, say, another sample person who's maybe the opposite of me, who has a big goal. Say someone comes to you and they say, hey, Sean, like, I've really wanted to write a novel my whole life, but I've never got there. Like, this year, I want this to be the year that I finally write a whole book. Mm-hmm. I have this big goal. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to write a book. It's going to be incredible. What would you... How would you start with that person? My first question would be, why haven't you got there in the past? You know, because we need to reflect on that, you know, and it might be a couple of things. What are the blockages? What are the barriers? You know, if you know what your outcome goal is in the past, what has happened? You know, I got distracted. I had a family, you know, financial pressures. What are these things? We have to understand those. What are the blockages and the barriers? That's addressed first. Okay. Second thing there is then going back to what we were saying before, is if you're really good at setting these big audacious outcome goals, then we need to shift your focus more on your process goals, okay? Mm -hmm. We need you to understand that the process goals are gonna make this big thing a lot more achievable, and we're gonna get some small wins along the way, which is very important, okay? Um, The arrival fallacy, 
that's something I would definitely uh, start with is, okay, when you write that novel, what does that look like for you? And what are your perceptions of life look like when that novel is written? Is writing it, is it getting it published? Is, it, is that going to give you eternal happiness? You yeah. know, what is, the, what is that motivation there? Okay. Mm. That's definitely something we'll talk about as well. And then going back, I, I call it the residual beneficiary. So the residual beneficiary is the last person that gets whatever's left over in a will. So when someone passes away, they split all the assets to everyone in the will. And then there's the one person that gets whatever's left over. Is that your goal in your life? Is your goal or your aspirations your residual beneficiary? Are you only putting time towards that with what you have left over? Or is this top of mind? Is this something that takes away from maybe screen time? Mm. This takes away from maybe family time, relationships, friendships, you know? How important is this thing to you? And then take all of that information and then the real goal might not be to write a novel, yeah. you know? Yeah. But it might be. But then you've got some evidence and you've got some proof on how actually to get there. Yeah. I so love that. Th- there's a lot of reflection, and uh, what I said in three minutes there is hours and hours of thought of you know processing yeah, yeah, yeah. some some emotions and feelings and, mm. and stuff like that. So really quickly, I don't even know how long we've been talking. We, no, we can I, keep going. Okay. Yeah, we can go. I just want to come back to that arrival fallacy and, and talk about your own experience with it, especially as a, a long distance athlete. Mm-hmm. And you know, and athletes have. I think I've spoken to a lot of athletes who have this problem because it's the next thing they need to win yeah. or the next race they need to complete. And what's your relationship with someone who you have a lot of points in your year where you could feel like you're just moving the goalposts forward? I've done this amount of race, you know, kilometers, so now I want to make it longer. Like, yeah. how do you make sure you're enjoying this process and what's your relationship with it so thankfully i learned this lesson quite early on and i think externally when people might see my um my endurance sports that i do they think like oh he has to strive for this next thing you know it's like (laughs) oh well what next yeah Yeah, it's like and that's very like that's i assume that's what people think i don't know that no one's ever said that to me but i assume that's what they think and i could be wrong i thought it (laughs) (laughs) what's sean chasing yeah yeah so for me i've learned this quite early on and i was I, I achieved some goals that I thought were going to make me very proud of myself and I thought they were going to make me very happy. And then I arrived there and I went, well, it Nothing. didn't really. Mm-hmm. Then when I reflected on some of these things, I took away the lessons that I learned. So it's like, okay, so when I did this, these are the lessons that I learned about myself. I know I'm capable of doing incredibly hard things. I know I have resilience now. I know that my motivation comes and goes, but I'll still stick to that thing. And I prove it to myself over and over again. And then what it does, it allows me to set bigger audacious goals that allows me to learn more, which allows me to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think when someone maybe sees me finish a race, you know, they think, all right, he's only going to the next big thing because it's the next natural stepping stone. He's not full. So I heard this last week, I think, and it really summarized it. And it was, I am enough, but I'm not done. Mm. And that's something that really sticks with me. And that's probably how I'd explain myself yeah, at the yeah. moment is what I have achieved. I have, I have intrinsic happiness and belief and I'm incredibly proud of what I've achieved, but I'm not done. Yeah, there's, there's more to be had for me and there's yeah. more lessons to learn. Hence why my yeah. goals continue to get bigger and bigger. 
I really take a lot from that as someone who's incredibly ambitious and also incredibly happy with what I have Mm -hmm. and how do I marry the two and I'm often very suspicious of my ambition but I'm learning not to be I'm learning to really befriend it because I always thought am I just moving my goalposts like am I chasing something but I'm not I think Noah Olsen actually the CrossFit athlete says he's hungry but happy (laughs) and I always really resonate with that like I am incredibly ambitious I'm so excited to connect with more people and to write more books and to keep going and I and I love this journey I'm on but I'm also like super fucking delighted right now. Mm-hmm. And that both are really possible. I think it's not really spoken about enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, just as many people I'm sure have looked at what you do in endurance training and thought, what is he chasing? To understand that we can be pursuing greatness and pursuing mastery and pursuing connection. It doesn't mean that we're not happy now. Mm-hmm. And that that's a possible place to be. And for people out there that maybe think that seems ridiculous, like I have chased goals where I thought it was going to fill my cup up. You know, I've, I've been there as well, mm. you know, and it's not a nice yeah. feeling. It, when you come from it from a different angle, it, it feels a lot better. Yeah. But I have been there and I have chased goals where I thought when I get there, you know, X will happen. <laughs> you know, I, I, the real famous one was the... Um, the billionaire that said, when I make my next billion, my father will love me. Mm, you know, yeah, yeah. It, that that's this. But once you change that thought pattern from reflecting on what's happened in the past, it becomes a hell of a lot more enjoyable yeah. moving forward. I mean, when we got this publishing deal, which is like, you know, the pinnacle of like, what's what I wanted for so long and it's what I thought would make me happy for so long. And, it, and but I was in such a better place. I was in the perfect place to receive this incredible gift um, of working with Penguin because... It was beautiful. I was able to enjoy it. I was able to celebrate it. I was able to reflect and say, wow, this is such an exciting project. Um, but I was also able to to know that this wasn't going to complete me. It wasn't going to make me. It was just it was just enjoyable, mm-hmm. you know, and I learned a lot from the process. Yeah. Do you think, how much of it do you think, Sean, is that you genuinely have fun doing all these sports as well? Well, I think people might... A lot of the stuff that I do, I don't find fun. Interesting. I remember interesting. this. So, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, think, I think suffering and I think sacrifice and that, that you learn a lot from that. Mm. And in hindsight, when you look back, it might be type two fun. You know, when I was, you know, halfway through Kosciuszko and my feet were a mess and I had, you know, multiple hours left of running that wasn't fun, you know. There's, so I think people might think I have a lot of fun with what I do, but a lot of my time is suffering and sacrificing. Mm. So uh, it's not all about fun. But I have learned over the years that that does create a better quality of life for me when not everything is comfortable, mm. you know. When everything is mellow and calm and comfortable, it's not when I'm growing as a person, mm. you know. Adversity helps. It teaches you things, you know. So I seek adversity. So, so my next race is uh, in eight weeks. Uh, Marathon de Saab, 252-kilometer run across the Sahara Desert, completely self-sufficient. So you have to carry all your own food and you have to look after yourself and be sleeping. I've never camped in my life. I've never gone camping. So this is some of the adversity that I'm seeking yeah, yeah. for the lessons that I know I'm going to learn. Yeah. Is it going to be fun? It might be fun five years from now when I get to talk about it. <laughs> In the moment, it's not fun. So, yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that exactly because mm. I, I do believe people think I'm having fun with everything that I do. You have In this, reality, like, it's not like that. Know, there's something about you that exudes play. And I think, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of your practices 
to be the best version of you includes adversity. Mm. And, I, and vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's th- an interesting think, one too. I think that's a big thing because I'm willing to be a student of anything. Mm. And that is, I think for adults, that is ve- like, I, I see parents say, just go to the swimming carnival. It doesn't matter if you come last. Mm. And then I said, so what have you experienced new in your life in the last five years? Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm not trying that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you know, the right thing to do is to be a student and be bad at things and start. Mm. And you will imp- it, like, you'll put that on your kids. Yeah, yeah, sure. You them. won't necessarily do it yourself. Yeah. And I think as the older we get, people are scared to look like they're not very good at yeah, something. Yeah, like they're, they're, they're scared to be a beginner. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote that I think you'd like. It's by Elizabeth Gilbert. And it says, life is just a school for endless learning. <laughs> well, like, I love that. I yeah. like that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more with it. Yeah. And I think the more you are a student and the more you are a white belt and the more you are a learner in any any aspect of your life, whether it be a language, whether it be creativity, whether it be a sport, you know, mm. there's lots there's to be so learned there, there. and yeah. there's so much you learn about yourself there. Yeah. So I, I think that's, I think that's, if I could summarize what other people thought about me, they, yeah. they would say, well, he's willing to be very vulnerable in lots of different things. And it kind of looks lots of fun, Yeah. but I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. you know? I would never. I don't want to go to my first swing dancing class. You know? yeah, like, yeah. And I'm like, I do. That'd yeah. be hilarious. Watch me fall over. <laughs> you know, I, I can't dance the to save my to, life. The ability to look foolish is so important. Mm. But also admirable. People admire oh, yeah. it in other people. Yeah, people love it. Do it. You know, do it. Yes. Post that thing. Be silly. Yeah. Be, you know, do it. it you, yeah, you learn a lot about yourself so there. Cool. So many people, I think, who would be setting that goal to like write a book or, you know, finish a painting. So much of the barrier, I think, for so many of them is that they would feel bad when they start. Mm. I think with, with art, it's really apparent when you're bad. I think sometimes I, I'm, you know, I suck at running. You actually got me back into running uh, about a year ago and you just were like, why don't you just run slowly? <laughs> and that's something that I was so practical and I was like, okay, I could just run slowly. I know what that looked like. But when you're trying to write and you're writing badly, you're like, this looks nothing like the books that I read, basically. Like, this looks so bad compared to the books I read. Mm. That, and that moment, of, whereas like, Sure, when I jog and when Kipchoge jogs, it looks very different. <laughs> but I still like, recognize it with the same activity. I know this might not make sense to someone who doesn't write, but I really sometimes feel like when I first start writing, I feel so bad that I'm not even in the same stratosphere as other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just projecting that obviously sportsmen would feel the same way as well. But it's, it, it's so painful, that period. It's so it, painful. It's, and I don't think anyone would disagree. Yeah. I don't think anyone would say, you know, that it's not painful and it's not a little mm-hmm. bit embarrassing. Yeah. But so, Amy, what was your first ever post look like? <laughs> Well, it was a picture of a rabbit and I said, what inspires you to write? (laughs) (laughs) And how do you feel about that post now? I mean, I love that woman so much. Like that's the perfect answer. I'm glad yeah. you said that. We didn't pre we, no. we didn't rehearse that. But but you love that person. I love her because you know she did. I mean, that's so fucking cute and stupid. It's a picture of a rabbit. And where did that lead to? Everything. Exactly. And and you know if you didn't post that mm. and it, if you waited for that to be perfect and if you yeah. waited for it, none of what's happened to you would have no, happened. No, none of it. Yeah. And I'm indebted to the woman who allowed herself to look silly. Yeah. It's incredible. Mm. Is that post still up? Yeah, it's Is still it? there. Oh, yeah. If you want to have a really sore finger and just scroll <laughs> through it, you can find some absolute... It, no, you can find the cutest, most heartbreaking things back there. James can't watch some of them. Like some of my first videos. <laughs> um, but I owe everything to her. Exactly. But it's like when, when I started jogging again and I'm getting overtaken on the leg by old ladies. And mm-hmm. I'm like... 
It's that beautiful. moment was such a learning experience. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's okay to be overtaken by old ladies when yeah. I'm running. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. it's safe. It's safe. It's, it's, I really like this idea or this framing of it's not just adversity, it's vulnerability. And I think that's something that artists particularly are very aware of. Like when you're bad at art, you feel so vulnerable. Mm. Um, and when you're in the Sahara Desert with only your backpack, and you feel so vulnerable. It's mm. this moment. And then vulnerability is like th- such an important experience for humans. And I love that. I guess when you're in the Sahara, you're going to have so much evidence that you're like, I've done so much hard shit before. It's like, I know that there's something within me that can overcome this. I didn't set running across the Sahara Desert as my first outcome goal. Yeah, exactly. This has been 20 years it's taken of proving to myself that I'm capable and, you know, and there's lots of lessons to be learned. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things that I don't know what I'm doing when I go into this. But from my evidence in the past and from reflecting on it, I have the self-belief that I'll finish the race. Yeah. You know? Amazing. So cool. Should we leave it there? Yeah. I just would like to ask Sean, how can people work with you? Mm. Uh, so my website, my business is called Sondervale. I, um, I'm typically on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn. Amazing. So, we'll yeah, put all the links we'll put all the in links. it. Yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Privileged to talk to you. Very grateful we found the time. Honored to be on here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sean.